You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true It's been tried in the fire Hello friends Welcome to another episode of the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm Donnie King, the host of this study. This is Monday, October the 3rd, episode number 84, The Church of Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last study, we answered a question that a listener sent in to us regarding a problem that seems to be plaguing our churches across the land. The question is this, how can Christians be discontent? Seems that there are discontented Christians within every congregation today. Is this normal? Is this the way it must be? How can a person have Christ as their Savior and yet be discontent, which also can be interpreted as unhappy? Is that even a possibility? We look into these thoughts and many more. In today's episode, we look at the first of the seven churches, which is the church's Ephesus. We talk about the good points of this church, and then we also cover their not-so-good points as well. We believe that we should be able to see ourselves in all of these churches, and hopefully what we see is in the good things. Have you left your first love? Does the Lord have somewhat against you? Does he know your works and labor of love? Join us today for the most interesting study. Now for the teaching of God's word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. Well, we're just tickled to death you're joining us today. We're going to look at the church at Ephesus. So many things to say about Ephesus, and we might as well not waste any more time. Let's get started. What do you think? Let's do it. All right. We're going to get in and get going. All right. Well, to get started, I'm going to go ahead and read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. As we go into Revelation chapter 2, we find Jesus speaking unto the seven angels who are over the seven churches. In verse 1, Jesus speaks directly to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Some have wondered why Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus first, but I think there's a couple of different reasons that it could be. It could possibly be because Paul founded this church and it had been led by his son in the faith, Timothy, and now by John the Revelator. This same John who received the revelation is the John who was the bishop of Ephesus. Ephesus was the largest city in Asia Minor, which could be why Jesus spoke to them first as well. Ephesus was home to numerous shrines and temples devoted to false gods. 
Once again, Jesus tells us that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden candlesticks. That's what he says in the first verse. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That takes us back to what we were studying last week in Revelation 1 and 20. I think it's intriguing that Jesus announces to this angel or the star, however you want to refer to them, that he holds them in his right hand. Number one, this goes along with what Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 28, that his sheep hear him, they follow him. He gives them eternal life and no man can pluck them out of his hand. Let me read you 27, 28 and 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Notice that he says in verse 29 that the sheep are in the father's hand. No man can pluck them out of the father's hand either. When Jesus specifies that he is holding them in his right hand, he is reminding us that his right hand has always been considered the hand of power. It's the arm of war. He states that he is holding us and keeping us by his power. That means that he's willing to fight for us. Isn't that an amazing thought, a wonderful thought even? In verse 2, Jesus tells the angel of the church of Ephesus that he knows their works. He knows the deeds that we do, and he knows the deeds that we fail to do. He commends them for not being able to bear those who are evil. Jesus told them that he noticed that they had tried those who said that they were apostles and were not finding them to be liars. Do you know what he was commending them for here? The church at Ephesus had displayed the fact that they had discernment. He tells them then in verse 3 that he knows that they have borne. What does that mean? In Galatians 6 and 2, Paul taught the church of Galatia that they were to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus recognized that they had been fulfilling his law. He also commends them for having patience, for laboring, and for not feigning. Once again, this connects with Galatians 6 and 9, where Paul encouraged them not to grow weary in well-doing, for they will reap in due season if they faint not. This church had not grown weary in doing what was right, and they were obviously either already reaping or they were about to start reaping because they had not fainted after their labors. This brings us down to verse 4, which I think contains one of the most chilling statements that a person could ever hear uttered from the lips of our Lord. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. What a fearful thought to hear Jesus say that to you or to me or to our church in particular. Can a person go to heaven when the Lord has something against them? It doesn't sound good, I can tell you that. Jesus' commendation has now turned to condemnation. What could a person do that would cause the Lord to have somewhat against you? Well, Jesus takes away the mystery because he explains, you've left your first love. Most people I've heard quote this verse has misquoted it through the years, and they say, you have lost your first love. If you lost it, it may not be your fault. If you left your first love, then it's definitely your fault. And here we don't have Jesus saying you lost your first love. They had left their first love. I also find it ridiculous that scholars have actually spent years debating what this phrase means. I mean, really, what can that mean? (laughs) They argue over whether this refers to the people leaving their love of Christ, they left their love of the church, or they left their love for seeing the lost saved. Regardless, if you leave your love of Christ, then all of the rest of these things are going to fall apart too. 
I believe we can use what First John 4 and 8 tells us to help us understand this. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. When Jesus says that they had left their first love, this means that they had forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and they have now hewed themselves out cisterns, and these were broken cisterns. They could hold no water. Jeremiah is somewhat famous for rebuking Israel for having broken cisterns, but the churches of our day should be rebuked as well for having broken systems. Notice the difference. They had broken cisterns. We have broken systems. Our systems keep operating even though God seems to be nowhere around or found within them. I don't care how well things are going in the church financially. I don't care how well things are going for you membership-wise. If God isn't in the church, you have a broken system. Concerning this thought about leaving their first love, I wonder how many ministers today have left their first love, but they are still preaching. I wonder how many singers have left their first love, but they're still singing. Jesus was speaking to the whole church when he accused them of leaving their first love. How sad is that thought? Could I ask the listeners today, have you left your first love? Or are you still with him? Are you still with Christ? Do you still love him? Do you still desire him? You don't want to stand in the place of the one who has left their first love. Revelation 2 and 5 says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Okay, there's multiple things that we need to bring out of this verse. First thing, Jesus says, they are fallen. Remember, from whence thou art fallen. He says, you're fallen. Obviously, they are fallen because they have left their first love. That much we need to glean from verse 4. And that's why he said to remember that you're fallen. How can you remember? Oh, yeah, I left my first love. He said, remember this. This is what caused you to fall. All right, they were fallen. But does this mean that they had fallen from grace? Does this mean that they were no longer saved? Now, answering this question is not as easy as it first sounds. How were they exercising discernment if they were lost? How could a group of sinners be doing some things right? I believe that they were in the beginning stages of backsliding away from God, and their devotion to God had fallen off from where it had one time been. Jesus tells them to repent. He says, you need to repent. Could I remind us that the only thing that people need to repent of is sin? You don't repent of good deeds. You don't repent of praying. You don't repent of doing anything that God said to do. The only thing that you repent of is sin. This tells us that they had replaced their original love for God with things that were sinful. As a matter of fact, whatever you use to replace God is a sin unto you. Jesus then tells them that they must do their first works over. This means that he is calling them back to himself. They may have left him, but he's still willing to have them. He tells them, though, that if they don't soon return to him, he will come quickly unto them and he'll remove their candlestick out of its place unless they repent. Exactly what does that mean and what does that consist of? Jesus is walking among the seven golden candlesticks. We've got that much from chapter one and chapter two, and we're told that the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches. And now Jesus says, I'm going to take that away from you. Do you realize what this is saying? He's telling them if they fail to repent, he will remove them from being part of the church. So this gives us our answer right here. They are still part of the church, even though they are not where they're supposed to be. He has given them another chance, another opportunity. And he tells them, if you won't repent from leaving me, I'm going to leave you now. 
That sure sounds like Matthew 21 and 43 to me. In Matthew 21 and 43, Jesus is rebuking the Jews, and here's what he says. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. In other words, I will take and pull away from you, and I will go to other nations. Well, we understand that that's exactly what happened when the apostles would go to the Jews and the message of Jesus Christ was rejected. The disciples and apostles finally turned from them and said, okay, if that's what you want, we'll go to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened. I wonder, though, bringing it more into our day, how many churches have ceased to exist for these exact same reasons? How many churches have closed their doors and shut down because Jesus took away their candlestick? And it came to that place because they left their first love. They didn't remember from whence they were fallen, and they never repented. They just kept going and going until finally one day, Jesus was no longer with them. That brings me to another question. I wonder how many churches are still operating today without the Lord's approval. That's a thought that strikes fear into my heart as well. Despite this stinging rebuke, we go into verse 6, and Jesus begins to commend the church at Ephesus for something once again. How can you commend a group that has left their first love? Obviously, Jesus prioritizes things of most important and goes down the list. And so he has given them their report card, if you will, and lets them know you have failed in this, you've done good in this, you've done good in that, you're not doing so great in this. He tells the church at Ephesus, you've done good because you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Jesus says that he also hates their deeds. Now, I want you to think about that. That's very strong language to say, I'm not pleased with it or this displeases me. Now, that's one thing. But for Jesus to come out and say, I hate their deeds, he's making a very strong statement and he's taking a very strong stance. Many people say this is one of the most confusing verses in the book of Revelation. Now, that is saying a lot. There's many verses in the book of Revelation that I find very confusing, very strange, very hard to understand, hard to comprehend, and especially hard to expound upon and teach. But this does have a surprising element within it. And interestingly enough, the word deeds here is the exact same word that he's already used twice in Revelation 2 and 2 and 2 and 5. That word is ergon in the Greek, and it's translated as works in the other two occurrences. Here it's translated as deeds. If you drop on down into verse 15, Jesus mentions this same group again, the Nicolaitans, and he mentions them when he's speaking to the church of Pergamos. To Pergamos, he rebukes the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is a different word, but they probably have a similar meaning to what Jesus wanted to convey to us. The deeds of them and the doctrine of them are probably very similar. I want to take just a few minutes and look at the Nicolaitans, who they were, what they believed, and why Jesus hated their deeds, their works, and their doctrine. It isn't every day you read the Bible and see something that Jesus is stating that he hates something. Some people teach that this group arose from one of the seven deacons that the church selected in the book of Acts chapter 6. They believe this was started by Nicholas, and he later defected from the faith and started his own branch of religion. Now, I'll be honest with you, there's not much proof of this other than two vague references to Nicholas from a couple of the early church fathers. So in one sense, we really don't know for sure who started this group, and the only thing that we do have is two small references from early church fathers to it being Nicholas, one of the seven deacons chosen in the book of Acts. One thing we do know, though, is that the Gnostics were connected to this group. 
And that's interesting in itself because Gnosticism branched off into several different groups. Gnosticism isn't just one tidy little group of people. They went out into several different groups. One of those groups were led by Serenthus. One of them was called the Balaamites, and the other was called the Nicolaitans. Apostle John and the Apostle Peter both spent a lot of their time fighting these religions and their heretical teachings about Christ. This probably explains some of the reason why Jesus said he hated their doctrine. Anything that would lead people away from the truth, which is Jesus Christ himself, that would cause them to leave their first love, Jesus would hate that. If someone was guilty of pulling your love away from him, I can see where Jesus would hate that. Since the 19th century, most people have viewed the name Nicolaitans as a translation of the Hebrew name Balaam into Greek. Now, let me explain that a little better. Nicolaitan is believed to be the name Balaam from Hebrew being transliterated over into Greek. There is reason for this because there's one thing that strengthens the connection of the Nicolaitans with Balaam, and it's the sins that are mentioned. They're basically the same. It mentions eating food sacrificed to idols and immorality. Well, if you go back to the book of Numbers, we see the same thing at work there. Numbers 25 and 1 and 2. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. If you go on down, it talks about the sin of Balaam here, and he's the one at fault. You go into Numbers 31 and 16, Behold, these caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. These same two sins are also listed by Jesus to be at Thyatira also. So many people believe that the prophetess Jezebel, who is mentioned to be at Thyatira, was a Nicolaitan prophetess. Now that makes that very interesting when you think about it in those terms. It is also believed that the Nicolaitans claimed inspiration for their teachings. Listen to Revelation 2 and 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. She claimed to be a prophetess, so she was claiming that she was inspired, and what she said was coming straight from God. As a matter of fact, the Nicolaitans wanted to be known as apostles and prophets, and this is probably who Jesus was speaking of in Revelation 2 and 3. Notice that Jezebel calleth herself a prophetess. Jesus didn't even say that she was a prophetess. He said she calls herself a prophetess. Back in Revelation 2 and 2, he says, I know your works and you've tried them which say they are apostles and they're not. You found them to be liars. They've claimed to be apostles. They've called themselves prophets. And this is who Jesus is talking about all throughout this chapter. This isn't a very good listing for the Nicolaitans here, for we understand that Jesus is coming down pretty hard on them. The mention of eating meat offered to idols concerns the purchase of meat at the marketplace that had already been offered in sacrifice to an idol. It may even refer to the actual participation in the ungodly pagan religious festivals where such meat was served. Whatever was not eaten, they would bring back and they would sell it in the marketplace. For some Christians, they couldn't eat that meat with a good conscience, thinking that it had been sacrificed to an idol. Others thought, hey, no big deal. Meat's meat. An idol's nothing. This don't mean anything, and they could eat it. 
That's what Paul was talking about when he said, if eating meat makes my brother to offend, I'll eat meat no more as long as the world stands. He wasn't saying because some vegan or some vegetarian says, oh, no, you're eating a cow that you just quit eating meat the rest of your life. No, he is specifically talking about meat that was being offered and sacrificed to idols. It had nothing to do with somebody wanting to do away with meat and do away with eating those things that have the blood in it and those gory things. I want you to realize People take that out of context all of the time, but it's not right. The word fornication here that's used is a synonym for idolatry, which can be defined as sexual license, and that's exactly what they did. And their idolatry, they would begin to have temple prostitutes come out, and they would commit all kinds of sexual license, and it was fornication. Eating meat offered to idols and immorality were in direct contradiction to the apostolic decree, which forbid Gentile Christians to do these things. You find that back in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 20. But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. You see it reiterated in verses 28 and 29. You also see it in Acts 21 and 25. Peter and Jude in their writings preached against Balaam. So if the Nicolaitans were closely related to the Balaamites in their belief system, this also tells us several things. I encourage you, read Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Read chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, and read the book of Jude, especially verse 11. Irenaeus said that the Nicolaitans were closely affiliated with the Gnostics and followed the heresies taught by Serenthus. They taught dualism, claiming that what was done in the body had no bearing on the soul. So in other words, your soul was clean and pure and perfect no matter what your body did. Just knowing that the Nicolaitans are linked with the Gnostics, Serenthus, Jezebel, and Balaam gives us a picture of how warped this group really was. Think about what little bit we do know about these people. Jezebel promoted idolatry and immorality for her bell worship in Jerusalem. Balaam is condemned in Scripture as leading the Israelites into idolatry and immorality with the Moabite women. Balaamites have eyes full of adultery. They cannot cease from sin. They beguile unstable souls. The Bible says they've exercised their heart to follow covetous practices and their cursed children. The Bible says they have forsaken the right way. Could it be that they left their first love and that's how they forsook the right way? He said they're going astray. Their leader loved the wages of unrighteousness. Whatever it could pay him, he was fine with it. It didn't matter how unrighteous it was, just give me the money. They speak great swelling words of vanity. They allure through the lust of the flesh. They live in error. They promise liberty, but they serve up corruption. Peter claims that they knew the way of righteousness, but after they knew it, they turned from the holy commandment given unto them. They're ungodly men, for they have turned the grace of God in the lasciviousness, and they have denied the only Lord. In the Old Testament, Balaam claimed prophetic power and divine inspiration, but he finally fell to his sensual and covetous practices. We might wonder today, how could anybody be deceived by people like Balaam and Jezebel and, and, and such as that? But I want you to stop and think for a minute. Look at all the people who follow Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and all of the faith healers of today that are so fake and ask yourself that same question. How do they have a following? How does T.D. Jakes have 30,000 people every service at the Potter's House? How does Joel Osteen have his own TV station and have his own radio station on XM? How does he have such an audience that is buying his books and listening to every word he says? So I want to ask you this. What do you believe causes people to be deceived? Number one, the main thing that causes a person to be deceived is they don't know the truth. 
Another thing that causes people to be deceived is they desire an easier way. Another thing that has deceived many people through the years is being told what you want to hear. Another way that people get deceived is being deceptive yourself. It opens you up to be deceived. That's why the Bible says deceiving and being deceived. There is a way that you can try to deceive others until the point that you become deceived. Could it be that that's what happened with Jezebel? Could that be what happened with Balaam? Could that be what the group the Nicolaitans were founded upon was an error? But we know it was because Jesus rebuked them and he rebuked the church at Ephesus for obviously some of them had fallen away and were leaning towards some of these beliefs. They were turning away from the only true God and Savior. They were turning away from their true love, the one that truly loved them and gave himself for them. And they were turning unto doctrines of devils. We'll round this out by finishing up in verse 7 today. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Jesus tells us, let your ears hear. You need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I like that because a lot of people think, well, the church of Ephesus only had to deal with what Jesus spoke directly to them. But Jesus says, let him that hath an ear hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Not to your church, but to the churches. The people at Ephesus didn't need to be guilty of the sins of Thyatira. The people of Pergamos didn't need to be guilty of the sins of Laodicea. So this is more than just talk to one church. He's telling all seven churches, you need to listen to what I'm telling each other. This is the first of seven times Jesus makes that statement in the book of Revelation. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. Jesus then says another phrase that's found seven times in the book of Revelation, to him that overcometh. And could I tell you, every time you read that, he will always follow that with a promise. The promise here, he says, He'll give to the one who overcomes the tree of life to eat from. He then tells us its location is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, that's definitely interesting here because of what it says and what it implies. The tree of life is first mentioned in Genesis 2 and 9. Let me read you that. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then we see this tree mentioned once again when man has been driven from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 and 24. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The tree of life comes back into focus later in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 2 and verse 14, and it sounds very similar to the language in Genesis. Let me read you those two verses. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. This is somewhat confusing, because the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, which we believe was in paradise, which was here on this earth. Is this the same paradise in the book of Revelation? Will the Garden of Eden be resurrected, or will we see its fulfillment? We'll find those things out later in our studies here in the book of Revelation. Lord willing, we'll be looking at the next church in our next study. All right, Brother Donnie, good teaching. I enjoyed that. Got a question here today. You ready for it? Yeah, let's go with it. Why did Jesus speak of circumcision in John 7, verses 21 through 24, when the people were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath? 
Is there any connection between the two? Another good question, and I'm going to give a short answer, and my short answer would be yes and no. (laughs) Now, I know that may sound contradictory, and I know that it is, but there are reasons why he said what he said, and one is related, and one is totally unrelated. Technically, they're totally unrelated in essence. Circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with the Sabbath day observance, unless the need for circumcision arises on the Sabbath. No matter when the birth date of the baby boy was, on the eighth day, the baby must be circumcised, whether it was Sabbath or not. So only on those times would it become an issue. In the very strictest sense of the meaning, yes, circumcision and Sabbath are very much connected here, and I'll show you why in just a moment. The easiest way to see the first connection is the point that Jesus made. He said, you believe in keeping the Sabbath no matter what, but then you break it when a baby boy is born eight days prior. What he was telling them is when you circumcise that child on the Sabbath, you have broken your own law that you're trying to uphold so greatly right now. I want to go back and read this setting in John chapter 7, verses 21 through 24, in case someone is missing anything in this setting, and that way you will know the context of what has been said. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment." What's going on here is Jesus had just performed a miracle, and it involved him healing a man on the Sabbath day. As ignorant as it is, they began to tell him that they would rather him heal on a different day. They would rather him do good works on any day but the Sabbath. Now, isn't that ridiculous? What religious mindedness will do for a person? (laughs) All right. Jesus reminds the people after they began to talk to him about him breaking the Sabbath, he reminds them, Moses gave you circumcision. And I'm sure some of them were there that they thinking, what? What's this got to do with anything? But then he also brought up the fact that they would circumcise the child on the Sabbath to keep from breaking that law of Moses concerning circumcision. So in other words, one law was broken to keep the other law. If they didn't circumcise the child on the eighth day, which was on a Sabbath to keep the Sabbath, they would have broke the eighth day circumcision law. So one had to go so the other would stand and they would bypass the Sabbath to keep the circumcision law. So he's letting them know the law isn't all that important to you anyway. You're just making an issue out of nothing. We all see the connection of things right here being done on the Sabbath. But what was the main point Jesus was trying to get them to see here? I believe it goes even a little bit deeper. He was telling them, you will cut something off and do away with it on the Sabbath, while I will make someone whole on the Sabbath. You take things away on the Sabbath, but I restore things on the Sabbath. You're tearing things down on the Sabbath while I am building things up. Now, let me ask you a question, knowing these things. Whose work on the Sabbath was more righteous then? This is another way that Jesus was claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath. He is doing good on the Sabbath, and therefore he is the righteous one on the Sabbath. Therefore, he is Lord of the Sabbath day. Amen. Good answer, Brother Donnie. All right, remember, friends, if you have a Bible question you'd like an answer to, drop us an email at DK Ministries 1977 at yahoo.com. 
That's DK Ministries, 1977 at yahoo.com. We encourage you to send the questions in to us, and we'll do our best to give you a biblical answer. We certainly hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until the next time, may God bless you all. We highly encourage you to come back on Friday, October the 7th, for our 50th special edition. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. Come back and see it. Approach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there. Cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name. I'm going where he bid to go. I'm dressing and talking like you want me to. He's a keeper of my soul. I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern. I'm looking for a home in glory where no sorrow.